0: Well, it is good to be back up here preaching to you after five weeks of not doing so. Uh, If you're new to Desert Springs Church, you might not know that the elders kindly give me a writing leave of absence every summer for a month where I work on something that hopefully uh, later gets published. Um, I'd rather not take any time to tell you what I was working on this summer, not because it's a secret, but... uh, Because I'm eager to get to God's Word and to preach to you. Uh, Time away from preaching here is always very confirming to me that this is the thing I love to do the most and this is the greatest privilege I get to have to be your pastor to bring God's Word to you. And, uh, and like you, I've also been blessed uh, these past few weeks to sit under the preaching of Alex and Chase as we've worked our way through the book of Job, Amen. the summer study. And the book of Job has had me thinking about past and present instances of suffering in this body. I've been at the bedside when saints have breathed their last. I have uh, buried the old and the very young. Uh, I've walked with others through marriage problems and abuse and wayward kids and illnesses. I'm not always the first responder. There are other colleagues of mine here who are, are far busier and far better at some of these things than I am. but. But I've seen a thing or two, and you have too. We know suffering. And I'm so thankful for the countless examples of saints in this church who have suffered much and suffered well. Suffering well. I hope those two words together are not a foreign concept to you. Suffering. Well, it's a beautiful thing to behold, to watch a saint suffer well. Part of how we prepare ourselves to suffer well is to know that there is an alternative to suffering well. There is a suffering that's not so well. In our suffering, we have to know that there is the possible possibility of missteps in our struggle with suffering. It is, it is possible for a genuine believer to cross a line, to go too far, to think things, feel things, and say things about God that they shouldn't. Sin may not be the cause. Of their suffering but but that doesn't preclude the possibility that in their suffering they have sinned the christian is not given some free pass in a season of suffering to think and feel and say and do anything they want as long as it's honest they might say well, of course we should be honest before a god who knows all our thoughts and words before they're spoken, but we sometimes will have to honestly confess to that God that our wrestling has turned to resentment, that our legitimate questions have turned to accusation, and our struggle has turned to sin. But but here's the wonderful thing about that. When we come to that realization that we've been doing that, that we've crossed a line, that we've accused God, that we've gotten bitter towards him about our circumstances, when we confess that to him, there is grace. There's opportunity for growth. There's healing. There's acceptance and peace even amidst the storm. The story of Job shows us all of that. So turn with me to Job chapter 38 in your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you. If not, we'll have the verses up on the screens. Today we're looking at chapter 38, verse 1, all the way to chapter 40, verse 5. We won't be able to look at every verse the same way. And so I want to offer up front three lessons for us. Three lessons that the passage teaches us about God and this God who deals with us in our suffering. Here's the first of these lessons. God is sometimes silent but never absent. God is sometimes silent, but he's never absent. Do you see in chapter 38, verse 1, these five words in the English Bible, then the Lord answered Job. We'll get to what God goes on to say under our next heading But first, we don't want to miss the fact that this has been a long time coming in the story of Job. God speaks to Job in chapter 38 and following. But for months, for dozens of chapters in our Bible, God has been silent. Eerily and frustratingly silent. And the silence of God, along with some wonky theology has led Job to think that God is all but absent. As Job debated the cause of his suffering with his three friends over dozens of chapters and dozens of speeches, Job has not only come up short for answers to his problems and answers to his questions. But he has, at times, accused God of wrong, of cosmic mismanagement, of injustice. I mentioned wonky theology. Can we go back to that? Can we make sure we have this under our belt? Pastor Alex has described it as a three-legged stool. Three issues were at play in the friends' debates with Job. There was Job's righteousness, that's one of the legs of the stool. Secondly, God's justice. But then this, what we call the retribution principle. A principle that goes something like this, that Good people are rewarded with good, and bad people get what's coming to them. And so the friends have insisted that Job must not be all that righteous if he's suffering to the extent that he is. But Job has insisted rightly that he has not sinned so greatly to warrant the great suffering And so he has questioned God's justice. We, the readers, know that Job was right. He had not sinned so greatly as to deserve the great suffering. But hopefully we also know that Job was wrong to accuse God of wrong. And it's that pesky retribution principle That was indeed a factor. And neither Job nor his friends questioned that. That's the one thing they agreed on. And what we and what Job are about to find out in chapter 38 and following is that Job and his friends should have ripped off the leg of the stool called retribution principle and thrown it away and they should have replaced it with something else. We'll eventually get to that that something else. But don't underestimate the effect of wonky theology in your suffering. A version of the retribution principle is alive and well today. It's in the prosperity gospel of T.D. Jakes and others. It's found in the softer candy, candy cane version of Joel Olstein. It's wherever legalism is found. And it's also often in the recesses of well meaning Christians who even have decent theology, but when things go badly, they can't help the suspicion that they must have done something bad to deserve it. All that is bad theology. And it has painful results. It was no small part of Job questioning God. And Job's wrong thoughts about God multiplied his pain and suffering. Yes, there were glimpses of tremendous faith found in Job's speeches. We've been highlighting these, right? Like Job's occasional insistence that somehow someday God would actually be the one to vindicate him or those times where he he keeps bringing his questions and doubts and even his frustrations about God to God he doesn't give up on God and even at his lowest points he does not curse God as Satan said that he would But but if if we don't properly assess the low points of Job's speeches, then we won't understand what God is about to say. At times, Job has accused God of being capricious in how he operates the world and cruel in his interaction with his creatures. He said back in chapter 9, verse 22, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the calamity of the innocent. He accused God of looking for false charges against Job. Chapter 10, verse 6. You seek out my iniquity in search for my sin, even though you know I am not guilty. And perhaps most telling is the recurring imagery of the courtroom where Job expresses a desire to take God to court. Oh, he knows it's God's court. He knows he's the judge. But he imagines a scenario where God is moved to the dock. Where he takes the stand and is questioned by Job. Chapter 23. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That I might come to his seat, to his judicial bench. And I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that he would answer me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever. That's wrong. That's sin. And yet through it all, in these long chapters before chapter 38. And sometimes with really good motives, we understandably find Job simply asking for God to show up, for God to say something, for God to speak and explain what's going on. And for months for chapters, for almost all of the book of Job, God was silent. But the fact that God eventually showed up and spoke is proof that even in the silence, he wasn't absent. He wasn't indifferent. Friend, in your suffering, God may seem silent to you, but he is not absent. He is not distant. He is not aloof. So when you come to God with questions and struggles and doubts, don't presume that God owes you an answer. He may not speak. He is often silent. And when he doesn't tell you what you think you need to know, when you think you need to know it, don't assume that he is absent or aloof or that he hasn't been with you even in the silence. So that's the first lesson. We get it by implication in the very first half of a verse in chapter 38. And yes, I know I'm in trouble with time when we've covered half a verse so far. (laughs) So here's the second lesson. God speaks, but often in unexpected ways. God speaks, but it's often in unexpected ways. In the rest of the book of Job, we have two lengthy speeches from God, each followed by brief responses from Job. And we'll look at the first round today, just the first round, a speech from God, a response from Job. So look down in your Bibles with me or up on the screens as I read the first 21 verses of chapter 38. This is God's speech. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed the limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning? Since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way to dwelling of the light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths To its home, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Notice with me, back in verse 1, who it is specifically that's addressing Job. It is the Lord, L O R D, with small caps. Those small caps indicate that in the Hebrew, this is God's personal covenant name. Yahweh, the one revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. I am who I am. The one later revealed to Moses like this. I'm the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is God's personal covenant name. And we've not seen that name basically since the beginning of the book of Job. The speeches from Job and his friends have referred to God more generally as in the Hebrew, El or El Shaddai, God or God Almighty. But now Yahweh has appeared and Yahweh shall speak. Right off the bat, that brief reference to God's self disclosed personal covenant name sets the tone. God is talking with his servant, Job. Remember, that's what he called him earlier in the book. My servant, Job. How does this covenant keeping God speak to him? Well, verse one it's out of the whirlwind. That means out of the storm, out of the tempest. When God shows up in visible, special ways in the Bible, often there is a physical manifestation. Sometimes clouds, sometimes fire, often things shake. And here as well, God shows up and he speaks from a storm, which also helps to set the tone for what's to come. This isn't a stroll through the meadow with God. It's not like walking with God in the cool of the day as Adam and Eve did in the garden. No, there is something ominous and sobering about a storm. What does the Lord Yahweh say to Job Verse 2, he asks, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? It's a curious phrase, isn't it? Darkens counsel? The counsel is God's counsel. It's his wisdom, his plan, his execution. Job has darkened that counsel with his doubt in accusations. In other words, he has cast a shadow on God's ways. He's cast a doubt on God's plan. And he has done so with words without knowledge. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And so God rightly asks, who is this? Who do you think you are? Verse 3, dress for action like a man. Get ready for something serious. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Remember the courtroom language? Job desiring to get God in court and put him on the stand, question him. Well, now God shows up, and he turns the tables. He reverses the roles that Job had envisioned. He puts Job on the stand. And God will now play the role of the prosecuting attorney. God has questions for Job, and Job will answer. And what follows ends up being 70 rhetorical questions between the two speeches that God gives to Job. We read only half of the first speech thus far, and you already get a feel for it. Or maybe you're wondering what is the feel? What should we be feeling here? What exactly is this? We'll we'll dig into some specifics in just a second. but, But we may wonder, what is God trying to do? Let me put it this way. I'm going to call this a loving and sobering rebuke. It's a loving and sobering rebuke. It is a rebuke. There are things that God needs to confront, and there are things that Job needs to correct. Job has darkened the counsel of the Almighty. Job thought that he and God were much closer in kind than they are. And so God will painfully and painstakingly show Job how big the divide is and how little Job really knows and can control. And so what God, what God says to Job is, it's sarcastic, it's repetitive, it's prolonged. It's supposed to be uncomfortable, painful, exhaustive. It's sobering, but it is loving. It is loving. The covenant-keeping God has shown up to his servant Job to help him with tough love. He's shown up to correct his servant. God could have just given up on Job. He, He could have showed up and demolished Job. But God came to Job. Yes, in a whirlwind, but he spoke to Job personally. Directly, God to man. He gives Job exactly what he needs. How do I know what God gave him here is exactly what Job needs? Well, the very speech itself tells us you shouldn't wonder. You don't need to question that. What he does is perfect and wise. So let's go through some specifics. Like verses 4 through 7, at the dawn of creation, the creation of the earth. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Back then when all the morning stars, the angels sang together, verse 7, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you? Were you there? No, you weren't. Angels were not you. Or how about the sea in verse 8 through 11? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, set bars and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, and no further here shall your proud waves be stayed. On one level, we should think literally of the sea, physical waters. And we should note, God is absolutely sovereign with every wave on every beach down to the inch all the time. But on another level, we should understand that the sea In ancient Hebrew thought, it represented chaos in disorder, death, and evil. So this is saying something more than just about the physical, literal C. It's talking about God's control over evil. Replace C with evil and you'll understand. God says to evil, thus far you shall go and no further. Satan, you can take out all that he has, just don't touch him. All right, Satan, you can touch him, but you cannot take his life. Thus far you shall go and no further. What a comfort to know that God has that kind of power and limitation on evil in this wicked world. And yet don't forget that this is a confrontation. It's a confrontation before it can be comfort. And that's why God words it not as a statement or as an assurance, but, but as a question, who? Who's done this? Have you done this? Can you do this? No. How about the sunrise? Verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it may take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Here in verse 13, we have an explicit reference to evil and wickedness. So if you don't buy that the sea is metaphorical for evil, well, here God gets literal. Every morning the sun rises. This is what verses 12 and 13 are saying. The light of the sun stretches across a hemisphere. And that sunrise, as God puts it, takes hold of the skirts of the earth. And then what's the next phrase? And the wicked shall be shaken out of it. Implication, I think, every sunrise is a reminder that God eventually will do away with evil all over the world. In every nook and cranny wherever the sun shines. Job, can you do that? Can you do that? Can you hold back evil? Can you judge all evil? Can you put an end to wickedness? No. Well, we could go on. We could talk about light and darkness. We could talk about snow and hail and rain and other precipitation and constellations. I encourage you to read all this for yourself. We don't have the time to read it or talk about it much today, but not only should you read it carefully, but meditate upon each of these as we've been doing with just a few of them so far. Can I just... Interact with a possible objection that you, in this modern scientific age, might be having with this poetry from God about creation. I mean, some of this language, do you know? Have you seen? Do you know how that works? Some of you are thinking, yeah, I do. I got a PhD in this stuff. I know exactly how light and darkness work. I know exactly the breeding habits of mountain goats and things like that, okay? <laughs> well, the discovery of new things is indeed fascinating. I, I'm not a guy who is against science. I, I was a, a biochemistry major at the University of Michigan before I switched over to uh, Bible and theology kind of stuff. So I, I'm not turned off by science, but. But I know just enough to know that the guys who really know a lot in their field are often the first ones to marvel at how much we don't know. The James Webb telescope goes live, and we get new discoveries. We see fascinating new pictures. And there are lots of new mysteries to solve that they didn't know they needed to solve. John Piper, commenting on this dynamic, says, with all of our science, it's like a a bucket of water in God's infinite ocean of knowledge. He says, God is not impressed. We should be overwhelmed with our ignorance, Piper says, not impressed with our science. That's the point. Verse 39, it turns to animals. Can I just mention two real quickly? Notice the lion in verse 39 where God says of him, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? God feeds the king of the jungle, <laughs> the so-called king of the jungle, lions. They're desperate for God to provide their food. Or how about the ostrich down in verse 13? This is fascinating. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are there pinions and plumage of love? Verse 14, she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them. Verse 16, she deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Verse 17, why? Why does she do that with her young? Well, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. But, verse 18, when she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Here's my three-point outline to this poem about ostriches. It's a bird... But it can't fly. It's stupid because God made it that way. And yet it flourishes. It's often even faster than a horse. Go figure. (laughs) The point of this, God makes some crazy things. He makes some things you didn't see coming. You wouldn't have done it that way. Neatly categorizing different things in like categories, like categories, and then you, you get an ostrich. <laughs> his ways are mysterious. Well, that's just a quick tour of some of what God says in his first speech to Job. Remember, the goal of it all don't forget that it's to show job how little he knows how little he can control job doesn't know better than god about how to run the cosmos job cannot do better with the world or with his life Than God can. God is sovereign and good and wise in the furthest reaches of creation, in the big and the small, in the majestic and the dumb, in the hidden and the near, in in the familiar and in the undiscovered. His ways are mysterious. And there is the missing ingredient in the debate between Job and the friends. They needed to pull out the leg of the retribution principle and they needed to insert divine mystery. Yes, Job was righteous and God is just and he does a lot of stuff that you don't know why. It's mystery. There's so much about God and His plan that we don't know. There's so much that we may never know. We sometimes say, I guess I'll find out in heaven. Who said that, by the way? Maybe. Maybe. There's so much that Job was never told even after these two speeches. Can you just ponder for a moment what's not here, what's not said, what's surprisingly absent? There are no answers from God to Job's many questions about why, about how, about why is this good How does this fit with God's attributes? There are no answers to that. There are no interaction. There's no interaction from God with Job wrestling with the reason for his suffering. There's no insight given to Job about what we know as the readers from back in chapter one and two in that heavenly scene. Remember the satanic challenge where God said, Job only worships you for what you give him. Remember that that was not only a statement about Job's failing faith, but it was also a statement about God's worth. You're not worthy to be worshiped apart from what you give your people, Satan inferred. Remember, God took up the challenge Twice and allowed Satan to take out Job's possessions and family and health. And what was at stake was the worth and glory of God. God could have revealed all of that. I think that would have, that could have been a real encouragement to Job. Wait, what? What was going on? What was at stake? I think at this point, God could have said to Job, and the test is over. Job, you didn't curse me. Your faith faltered, yes, but you didn't curse me. You shut the mouth of the accuser. You vindicated my worth and glory. God didn't tell him. Ponder this, God could have explained to Job that his story would be preserved in a book for millennia, and countless saints, suffering saints, would read about his story and be helped. God could have transported Job to this moment right here to give him a peek Desert Springs Church, benefiting from the story of Job. Do you think that would not have been wind under his wings? A bolster in the boat of his life? And God didn't tell him. That's what I would have told Job if I were God. I'm not God. God speaks, but not always the way that we would expect. Sometimes we think we need a word of comfort. Sometimes we think we need an explanation. And sometimes what we get, for now, because it's what we need, is a word of confrontation. And so chapter 40, verse 1, look at it. These are God's Closing arguments, you might say, at least for now, the Lord said, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job had been a fault finder. Job had desire to contend with God, thinking he could argue and win. So how will Job respond. Verse 3 of chapter 40, then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And here is our third lesson. God silences accusations while he sanctifies his people. He silences accusations as he sanctifies or purifies or grows his people. Job confesses his smallness before God. And for now, he vows silence before God. Uh, Job will have more to say in the rest of the book of Job, but for now, this is a really good start. This is growth, this is progress. God has put an end to the accusation spoken by his servant, and God was gracious and kind to get Job to that point. God was gracious and kind to show Job God's bigness and Job's smallness. And Job drops all charges. He says nothing else. He's done with the questions. He's done with accusation. And maybe you need to do something similar today. It is possible to suffer, not because of sin, but in our suffering to sin. Lament is a good and important category in the Bible. And there's another day for another message about lament and what we should learn about that. But but we have to note that There is a kind of prayer to God that has grown bitter, cold, resentful, and really wishes you could rip the steering wheel out of his hands and drive this thing of your life better than him. Well, maybe today you would join Job standing in awe At the utterly wise, powerful control of an omniscient God that you would stand in awe of a million things you know nothing about. And you just drop your questions for a little bit. Just be quiet. Be still and know that He is God. Be still. And no, He is God. Do you know what we need more than answers to our questions about our suffering? We need an encounter with God. We need more than explanation from God. We need revelation of God. That's what God gave Job. That's what he needed. It's what, it's what we need today. You may not need a rebuke today, but you need this God. You need to see you're not him. You could not do better. And that's what God provided ultimately in the arrival of the Son of God, Jesus. There was another time when God was silent for some 400 years. And then he showed up and spoke. God has spoken to us supremely in his Son. He is the Word in the flesh and we beheld his glory john says john chapter 1 verse 14 when jesus showed up he told his disciples what he was up to what was going down what was going to happen he let them in on the secret it was not what people expected It's not what they thought they needed. Think of that interaction between Peter and Jesus in Matthew 16. Remember, Peter identified Jesus as the Christ correctly, but then Jesus said, yes, and I'm going to be crucified in Jerusalem. And Peter didn't like that. Peter thought that was a bad plan. Peter thought he knew better than Jesus. He thought he knew what he needed He rebuked the Christ. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. And praise God, Jesus knew better than Peter. Jesus knows what we need, and he provided it. In that death upon the cross, and in his resurrection in the third day. So, so let the book of Job tell you God's doing a million things you don't know about. So don't doubt him in what he has for you right now. But then also look to the cross. No one saw that coming. Didn't seem to make sense. It Didn't seem to be right for Messiah to die. But it's the salvation of the world. It's the hope on which we rest our eternal souls. Oh, we get up in the morning. It's the message that should fill our mouths. We can trust Him. We can trust Him. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you for your marvelous word and for your marvelous plan recorded in the scriptures and ultimately um, shown to us even day by day in our lives. Oh, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your care for us. We thank you that you know more than us. Help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.